Lots of hope and promise in that psalm which was interpreted in light of Christ and also is now to us as well who are in him. As we turn in our word, copies of the word of God, I would invite you to listen with me and follow along in uh, Deuteronomy, where did that come from? Matthew 25, Uh, we're going to continue, we're actually going to cover two parables this morning, which are um, in line with a third parable that we found back in chapter 24. As we now pay attention and take heed to the word of God, beginning at verse 1, now hear God's word. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather and sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled the accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, You delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have 
not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, and, who, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Thus ends the reading of the word of God. Our gracious Father before us is the Spirit's word spoken by our Savior to all of us. And we ask that the Spirit would open up our ears that we may hear and our hearts that we may understand. That each one of us would take heed unto this word and be prompted by the Spirit to take the word and then Weave it into the fabric of our heart and into our lives and show us the application for it today, for us individually and for us corporately. May we be prepared to meet our Lord. So much so that we long for it. Above all else, above everything else here upon the earth, may we set our affections on things above And may we labor for those matters of heaven. May we lay up for our treasures there and have our mind and our heart fixed upon the kingdom of God. Spirit, we understand that those things which are spiritually appraised can only be done by your discernment. And so we ask now that you would pour yourself out upon the preaching of this word to make it powerful into our hearts and lives, to the saving of your elect. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Twenty-four years ago, the world grew very concerned about a potential phenomenon that many believed would cause worldwide mayhem and chaos. Many microchips had an internal time clock, and the year was 1999. And much like we do today, the year is only noted with the last two digits of the date code, 99. But the new century was about to flip over to the year 2000, and those date codes would register in the microchips as 00. Computers and microchips were and are still a relatively new thing in the history of the world, and no one had considered how the internal software would respond to a date code of 00. And since so much of the world was now controlled and influenced by microprocessors, the world began to panic because they didn't know what to expect when the year 2000 came. It was an event that we refer to as Y2K. Some of you remember it. Some of you weren't yet born. The world began prepping, prepping for a worldwide financial crisis. Worldwide communications shut down in mayhem for 
a whole new world of an unknown and unimaginable. Well, the year 2000 rolled over and the world went on just as it had before without a hiccup. But in the year leading up to that rollover, the world did a lot of prepping. Some people moved altogether, changed their lifestyle completely, bought new property, bought off-grid things, and, and literally changed the entire worldview that they had up to that point. The present passage that we are considering before us in this print is a passage that is telling us that something real is coming. Unlike Y2K, you can count on what Jesus said will happen. Jesus was instructing everyone that when he returns, he will bring everyone into an account with how they live their lives here upon the earth, and he will judge them accordingly. Unlike Y2K, no one knows when that day or time is coming. Unlike Y2K, you can't scramble the last year to prep for it. You must be prepared to meet the Lord and give an account for your life. Whether you die today or whether the Lord comes today, you must always be ready and prepared to meet the Lord your judge. In order for you to be spiritually prepared to meet the Lord, and there's not a target date in mind to aim for, you must live a lifestyle that always keeps you spiritually prepared to meet Him. And I want to preach to you this morning on our Lord's warning and exhortation to us to live a lifestyle of spiritual preparedness. As referenced last week, chapter 25 goes with, there seems to best go with the end of chapter 24, beginning at verse 36. I want to bring us back up to that in context to get somewhat of a running start here, because this is the intention of our Lord's giving of these parables is to to equip us and to warn us and to energize us for his return. At any moment, at any day, and we do not know the hour or the epoch of time or the age in which that will come, so always be ready. That's his message. It will come a time when we are least expecting it, and when life goes on as usual and things are just moving, and then all of a sudden it's too late, it's here, it's upon us, and we, if we're spiritually ready, it's the greatest joy we'll ever know. And if we're not spiritually ready, it'll be the greatest fear that we will have ever experienced. As we consider from Matthew 24, beginning at verse 36, there's a distinct change in the nature of what had been described up until that point. The disciples began asking the question way back at the very beginning of the chapter as they, they pointed him to the temple structure. And then Jesus says, you know, if you, you see all these things, but I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. And the disciples began asking, well, when will these things be, Lord? And when will be the end of the age? 
And he began to describe and to be able to answer that question, when the temple will be destroyed, when will be the end of the age? And it would become very clear that this happened in that generation of those living there. In fact, Jesus would say, and I, I believe around verse 33, he says, none of these, or all of these things will by no means, or all of these things will take place before this generation passes away. So he made it very clear that within a generation of time, all those things are going to take place. And all of that did take place in A.D. 67 to A.D. 70, where the finality of that in A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed. This was a coming of Jesus, but not in his physical second advent. This was a coming of Jesus in judgment upon the people who rejected him. God had done this several times already in history. He has come in the same kind of language that is used in Matthew 24 and coming in the clouds and coming to bring judgment. And those events of which Jesus warned them in Matthew 24, verses 3 through 36 or 35, would be now connected with the abomination of desolation of which Daniel prophesied. It would be connected with the great tribulation. All of those things then came about with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, the end of the Jewish age, which was exactly what the disciples had asked him to inform them, and he did. And Jesus had informed them that this generation that was then living would, would still be alive when those things happened. There was a great judgment coming. It would be the end of the Jewish age, the end of the sacrifice, the end of the temple, the end of the Jewish nation, and all that happened in A.D. 70. When the Jewish temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was burned, and Israel has since never been a nation like that. But the events that began in verse 36 began now with a new character altogether. And he begins saying in verse 36, but of that day, and now through this prophecy telescoping, he sees another day in the future, not this generation, but of that day, another one still in our future. And he begins to give them of a different sort of judgment that's coming, the same judge, Jesus, but of a different sort. And the character changes here. In chapter 25, we go into this chapter with no introduction because it's carrying right on the coattails of the previous context. We have in chapter 25 the opening with two parables, but it's a series of three parables. The previous one started in chapter 24 and verse 41 when it was the parable of slaves who were left in charge. Here we have another parable of these ten virgin bridesmaids in verses 1 through 13, and the third parable in verses 14 through 30, uh, which were the parable of slaves entrusted with a whole lot of money. And what is it expressing? It's expressing what the kingdom of heaven will be like in the final day. Now, when Jesus came in A.D. 70, that was a display that he was seated upon the throne and is reigning as king over all of the nations and over the situation there in Jerusalem. 
that the era of the new kingdom has come and he had poured out his spirit upon the church and the kingdom was growing and would continue. But in the day of the final day, that last day, the kingdom of heaven will be like what these parables now express. Then the kingdom will be like. Verse 14, the kingdom will be like. In verse 31, we see there's a gathering of all the nations now before the Lord, and Christ will then divide them. He will be a division between the sheep and the goats. Some will go into everlasting punishment. Others will receive their eternal reward. So this section is very different from the one that follows in the beginning of chapter 24. Unlike Y2K, Jesus here is expressing what his kingdom would be like in the end, the last and the final day when he bodily returns, the resurrection happens, and both those in Christ and those apart from Christ will have an again of account for their lives. He's going to hold everyone accountable for how we lived our lives here upon this earth. This is going to be true, and it's going to be universal for everyone. There are Two truths that we cannot escape, and one of them is not taxes. As Hebrews 9.27 says, And it is appointed to men once to die, but after this the judgment. Those are two inescapable, unavoidable truths. We are all going to die, and we will all face our judge and God. Now, that does not have to be a fearful thing if we're prepared for it. In fact, it can be a very delightful thing, a thing for which we long for if we are prepared for it. And if we are not prepared for it, it will be the most dreadful thing that we have ever faced. There is nothing benign. There's no fence riding. There's not a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's an all or nothing. It's either here or there. Let's consider these two parables, and let's consider how Jesus is using these parables to energize our spirit to a lifestyle of preparedness. As we consider the first parable of the the ten bridesmaids, it's going to be helpful to us if we understand the cultural background of these ancient Jewish weddings that took place. So let's first get the imagery. An important part of a Jewish wedding in that day was a processional that happened near the end or at the end of the day. The groom would set out, along with friends of the groom, to go get his wife from her parents' home, where she was waiting with her bridal attendants. Some commentators suggest that this time that the groom spent was often with the father negotiating or at least settling the financial arrangements for that new wedding. In that particular culture, there were two monetary exchanges that took place. The first one was the bride price. This was the price that the groom would give the father of the bride to compensate the father of the bride for the loss of the the household productivity that he was giving up. And it was customary to compensate him for that. The second price or financial arrangement that would be worked out was the dowry. Now, the dowry 
was a bit of money that the father of the bride scraped together to give to his daughter should anything ever happen to her new husband, and she was left in widowhood. And so we had these arrangements, and as these arrangements are now being settled between the groom and the father of the bride, after that would take set, be settled, then there would be a torch-lit parade, a processional, if you will, from the, the bride's home over to the groom's new home with all of the attendants now following. This processional happened usually and customarily at night, so the torches could be brightly seen, and you see this, this brightly lit uh, festival, processional parade through the night of the village or the town in which they lived. The bride and groom would enter the groom's house where they would traditionally sit under a canopy where they presided over the wedding feast with a great time of eating and feasting for everyone. Those festivals often went on for over seven days. The guests then were, were legal witnesses to the consummation of this, this wedding that took place. Now that we have the imagery, let's consider how the Lord used that particular imagery of that cultural Jewish wedding in the time where He is now energizing us for His second coming. In the parable, what we find is a delay of the bridegroom, such a delay that uh, they all fell asleep. There were ten bridesmaids, five of which were wise and five were foolish. The wise were those who had their lamps or torches, and in addition to that, a, a jar of oil. The foolish had their torches, but they had no supply of additional oil. The delay of the long, perhaps, settlement, or whatever the case was, we're not told, led to the slumber of the bride's attendants. In the parable, Jesus is not addressing that sleeping is the problem, but rather the unpreparedness for when the moment came. In fact, we can be prepared for Jesus in our sleep as much as we can in our waking hours if we have lived the lifestyle of spiritual preparedness. The one matter that differentiated the five prepared girls from the five unprepared girls was their supply of oil. The Greek term for the word lamp, often which the translators translate in this passage as lamp, can also be translated as torch. And given the fitting cultural narrative of that tradition, many commentators would suggest here it is a torch and not a lamp that is being spoken of. What the torch would, would occur is when they would light the torches that would be brightly seen across the horizon or the landscape as they would parade at dark. According to one commentator, he said that these torches would only sustain being lit for about a quarter of an hour, of which they would have to replenish it with oil until the time in which the parade was finished. And that's the reason why the additional oil would be needed. When the hour finally came and the bridesmaids were awakened from their sleep, five of them were prepared and five were not. Then at the very moment, 
the five unprepared girls realize their plight. Oh no, we don't have enough oil to sustain the procession. At that time, they didn't have the time nor the resources to be prepared for the moment that came. Their time for preparation had already passed. Processional was now on. The five girls without oil desperately went out to purchase more oil, but it was too late. Everyone had arrived at the groom's house, and the doors were shut, and the wedding festivities had begun, and then the other girls show up. But then it's too late. They come, and they knock on the door, and they say, Lord, open up to us, and the parable ends. With his sobering words. But he answered from inside and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. The manner in which the bridegroom here answers those five foolish virgins echoes back to the way that Jesus expressed in Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus concludes the parable here in Matthew 25 after that sobering echo when he says, Watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour which the Son of Man is coming. This is his point. Those who do not live a lifestyle of spiritual preparedness will not be ready to meet him when he comes. And they do not know when he comes, so they must be ready at all times for when He comes. You will not have a last moment to scramble for the oil. You must have your store now. Those who truly know Jesus will be prepared to meet Him when He comes to the extent that they will long for that to happen today. Otherwise, he replies, I do not know you. I never knew you because you did not do the will of my Father. Now, our Lord expects us to be very careful, full of care for his kingdom and who he is. The five lazy girls were not completely careless. They just were not careful. They showed interest in the wedding. They had torches. But they were not ready. They were, as much of our world is in churches today, apathetic apathetic about the kingdom. Our Lord says to those who are 
truly his disciples, to those who know him and love him above all else. He says, you have to value the things that I value above everything that you would possibly value otherwise. You have to make God's kingdom your priority in your life. You have to make God and his kingdom more important than your job, more important than your status, more important than any other relationship, more important than your wealth, more important than your dreams, more important than your aspirations. You must make Christ's kingdom more important than anything you actually ever have or ever could dream of in this life. And if you're not willing to do that, you're not willing to be his disciple. And he's not willing to have you on board. Our Lord has warned a number of times throughout this Gospel of Matthew, time and time again, has he not? To be a true disciple of Christ, we must love Jesus above every other earthly relationship. Unless you love me more than you love father and mother, husband and wife, sibling, friend, whoever that is, and you have to love Jesus above that or you're not worthy to be his disciple, he says. You must seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That must be the priority over every earthly thing you value or you're not worthy to be his disciple. He says, if you want to be my disciple, I'm not seeker-friendly in that sense. I'm not trying to just talk everybody into it on their terms. No, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you always come to him on his terms. You must be willing to deny yourself, count the cost, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus today. And it's a daily thing that he calls us to do. That's why the Gospel of Luke puts in that word daily. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. What Jesus has been getting at throughout his earthly ministry is there is a lifestyle. It's not an event. It's not a time in which you merely walk an aisle and make a profession. It's a lifestyle. It's a life. Five girls without oil had a spirit of apathy. They had not valued as highly as they should being prepared for the great feast. Christians who have a spirit of apathy toward Christ and his kingdom are warned in this parable that they will not be ready for him in that state of apathy. So wake up, go get your oil, today is the day to get your jars full. This parable is followed immediately by another parable. It's the parable of slaves, three particular slaves that are entrusted with a whole lot of money. The word talent here, which most of our translators have, have used, can be misleading in terms of the parable. Not that it doesn't apply, but it's misleading in terms of really the cultural uh, weight of this. 
The point here is that there are three slaves. These are slaves now that are entrusted with a whole lot of money. A talent, according to a commentator that I have on my shelf, um, said that would be equivalent to a laborer and what he would earn in half of his lifetime. Even one talent would be a very large sum of money and now given to a slave. Five talents were given to one slave, two talents to another slave, and one to the last one. Each slave was given a certain number of talents, and he was responsible for those talents. That's the point of this parable, what we are responsible for. The point of this parable is to emphasize one's kingdom responsibilities that one has in his life and be ready to give an account for those responsibilities that Christ has given to each one of us particularly. As the master gave each slave a very large amount of money, he delayed his coming back, and the passage says, after a very long time. He eventually came back and he caused the slaves to give an account. And when he came back, he caused them to give an account for what they've done with their talents to which they were called to steward. And the issue with, with one of the, with the single talents is not that he did something wrong. He simply did nothing. That was the issue. He did nothing to be responsible with what the master had given him for the kingdom. Being prepared for our Lord's return requires us to live a particular lifestyle, living responsibly with what the Lord has entrusted to us and using all of those resources for God's kingdom, and keeping the priority on the kingdom first in our lives. We have to be kingdom-minded. The Lord was coming to set up His kingdom. He calls us out of the world and out of darkness into the light of His kingdom to serve the great King to give our entirety of our lives, everything we own, everything that we have, to the great use of the glorification of the King. As Ephesians so aptly have told us that we have been saved by grace, by God's lavish grace. And as we've been saved by grace and not of our own works, we have been saved it says in the following verse, in verse 10 of Ephesians 2, that we have been saved to walk in the good works that God has foreordained for each one of us to walk in. See, God, before He even saved us, already had good works, the very things He wanted us to do and be responsible for and to do for Him in this life, to glorify His name, to grow His kingdom. And then he saves us to that end, and now we are responsible for that which God has set us on the path of. He's given to each one of us here today works 
good works that we are then to do for his great namesake. We're already saved by grace. We're not saved by doing these works. But in our our love for God, we then follow in the good works and live the very purpose and design for which he has saved us and in the time he saved us and in the context he saved us to do those good works because he's got a big master plan, the likes of which none of us know at this point. Of how it all works together. But we simply have to do our part. Be responsible for what we have. And it's not how much you have that matters. But what you do with what you have. Whether you have one, two, or five. The point of this parable is living life responsibly for the king and for his great kingdom. We cannot look to others on envy because of what they have or they have been given more, that should never be a part. In fact, the very character of envy is not of the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of God is not a one-size-fits-all economy. never has been. We must accept what God has given to us and live responsibly for His kingdom with all of those things that we have. That's the point of the second parable is that we are to live a lifestyle so that we are living responsibly. The first two slaves are models of enthusiastic discipleship. Each one took what he had and earned 100% profit on it. And we can see, by the way, that the third slave responded that there was clearly a risk involved that he was not willing to face. That slave went and hid his talent, and he would no doubt have justified his action as one of prudence and not of cowardly action. But his prudence did not result in any benefit to his master. Now hear me carefully. Living by faith is risky. It's risky. That's why Jesus says, be willing to count the cost. It's going to require a a courage, a supernatural spirit-infused courage, not not a fleshy, carnal courage, but a boldness that only the Spirit can give. And it's such that... When he gives it, we will have it. But he says in Revelation with a stark warning, in Revelation 21, 8, he says, But the cowardly and unbelieving shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire, brimstone, which is the second death. Fear is absolutely antithetical to a walk in faith. It is love that we have for our Savior that will actually rise us up beyond our fears and to do those things which appear to us as very risky and dangerous. And I'm speaking spiritual words and not careless words. But it is careless if we are not willing to pick up the cross and follow Jesus where we do not know where that path follows or goes, but we just are following him. It's risky. 
We have no guarantees except what Jesus has told us. You seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these other things you worry about, I'll take care of those. Verse 19 then expresses again, it's a long time that elapsed. What happens when long times elapse, when there's accountability that must be given? Our tendency is we tend to become apathetic. We, we lose energy in that which we're responsible for about the reality of our Lord's return, our Master's return, our parents' return, whatever the accountability is. Long time goes by and we think that we can get by with it or we can put it off for another day or we procrastinate the, 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 the matter thinking we'll have more time to deal with those important matters of life. And that's exactly the spirit that Jesus is warning against here. Do not put it off another day. Do not procrastinate your soul. Several commentators believe that the third slave's inaction is perhaps attributed to some self-interest He could not expect to get any significant personal benefit from whatever his trading might achieve, so why bother? You just go hide it in the sand and I'll give it back when he comes. Commentator R.T. France says, but the risk is at the heart of discipleship. By playing safe, the cautious slave has achieved nothing. And it is his timidity and lack of enterprise which is condemned. His attitude is described as representing a religion concerned only with not doing anything wrong. And that is not the religion of our Jesus. In both of these parables, there is great joy for those who are living faithfully for Jesus and his kingdom. When he comes back, he's going to find faithful servants of his, how he has equipped them with the grace and the spirit of God to to be enthusiastic about his kingdom and to have the values that he has valued and to love what he loves and want to be able to produce and be responsible for their master. And when he comes back, these he will find ready to feast with them, ready to go to the great banquet. they will find that their greatest desire and expectations will be fulfilled and rewarded beyond what they could ever imagine. Well done, good and faithful servant. Isn't that the words we all long to hear from Jesus? Well done, good and faithful servant. And how mindful we are of how times we have fallen so short of that glory. That we want Him to delay a little bit because we know that today we are not faithful. But that is the words we want to hear from Him. And how gracious He is, how merciful He is each day. So that we have opportunity today to hear those words because of the decisions we make today. delaying gratification for that day. If we can delay all of our gratification for that day to hear those words, it will be worth any sum and everything that we've ever given for Him in this life. 
I mean, God, our Savior, saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Notice here, it wasn't their joy. It was entering into the Lord's joy. The fullness, the completeness. But the contrast here is given for those who do nothing with their lives for the kingdom, for those who are not living a lifestyle of spiritual preparedness, for the apathetic, lethargic of spirit, for the procrastinators, spiritually speaking, who will not be ready to meet the Lord, their lifestyle doesn't match their profession. Many of them are in churches. Many of them uh, are around on this day in churches. I'm afraid there may be some here today that are not prepared spiritually to meet the Lord. But it is only those who do the will of the Father who is ultimately in the kingdom and belong in the kingdom. There are many that are not prepared today, who have heard the words of the gospel, but their lifestyle does not meet up with their profession. And there's danger. If that is true of you today, there's a mercy which you should not presume upon for tomorrow and a mercy right now that Christ offers. There is time right now to repent of your sins, deny yourself in all humility, letting go of all those values that you think are profitable. Pick up your cross, which is a symbol of your death to self, and follow Jesus by faith. Taking the risk, if you will, but knowing the certainty and the outcome will be worth it. Your time may be up today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of your faithfulness with God, your carefulness, full of care, Full of faith. Now is the time to get right with your creator, your Lord and judge. Because once you die, it's the judgment. Both are certain. May God today energize us to live by faith and not by sight. Not figuring out what tomorrow is going to hold, but walking faithfully today in what he has given to us. To rest today in his provision to be responsible today with what we have, willing to take risk and attempt great things for God and expecting great things from Him. Living a lifestyle of preparedness is walking daily in a relationship with Jesus, trusting in Him, being responsible for what He's given to us, Offering up as a sacrifice of, Lord, what do you want me to do with my day today? What do you want me to do with my time today? What do you want me to do with my resources today? Being responsible for it all. Valuing the things he values. Loving the things he cherishes. 
eschewing the things he hates, and living faithfully in obedience to everything whatsoever he has commanded us in the Scriptures. That requires more diligence and care than Y2K. But the rewards will be well worth it. May God help us. Our Father, you have taken us out of darkness and put us into the light, into the kingdom of your dear Son where we have the forgiveness of sins and where we share with the inheritance of the saints who are in that light. Our life is not our own. We have been bought with the price, the price of the blood of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We planned not when we came into this world, but you did. We have not all the answers, but you do. We have not the wisdom for tomorrow, but you've already figured it out. You know the path that we are to tread, and we are today to live faithfully in following you. In our character, our obedience, our love, and our fully committed lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. In all that we have, all that we do, in all in who we are. Take our lives, make them a living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service. And use them for your glory and the advancement of your kingdom in ways of which we cannot even imagine. Make our lives useful for you. Give us a great anticipation of the joy of the coming of the Lord. Give us a great longing for the glory of which you speak truthfully about in your word. And we pray if there is one here that is not right with you that does not know the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior, or who does know him and is currently in an unrepentant state. Lord, you know the hearts and the minds, and we do pray that your spirit would convict and bring to repentance and bring to yourself with great joy and brokenness and humility, and that these may know and not be fearful of your judgment. May we all be ready, Lord. And Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. It is in your name and for your sake that we preach, hear, and we pray. Amen.